Hi, this is Amir Anzor.com speaking with Pervez Abbasi, who is a really fascinating guy that I wanted to bring to our audience. And what he did is he started, he was basically raised in the UK, in, in, in London. And at the age of 27, he immigrated to Pakistan. He's from Pakistani origin. And so he's one of the few that reverse immig immigrated. Like most people come from the east to the west. He went the other way. He spent the last few decades out in Pakistan. And he started a successful venture uh, at some stage in the, 19, in the 2000s. Over 70% of mobile phones that were sold in the country were sold through his company and his platform that he started as an entrepreneur. And then he set up in 2016 the National Incubation Center. So he's had over 300 startups in Pakistan go through that incubation. Um, so he knows what very few people know, which is about startups at a mass level, because we might have had startups that we do individually, but he gets to see the big numbers of hundreds of startups. And then also, I want to get his opinion on why he became a reverse immigrant, what made him go out to Pakistan. Um, and, and so there might be people like us that are, you know, of different origins living in Europe or US that might want to do the same and what they can learn from his journey and how he can help us. So thanks for being on. So just give us a bit of a background of how you, you what you started, your background on, on growing up and what made you move to Pakistan. Thanks very much, Amir. First of all, it's great to be here. Um, London's always my favorite city in the world. And um, thank you for having me on your podcast. So to be honest with you, it's not just one thing. It's a combination of the perfect storm. So, so many things happen at the same time, resulting in an opportunity for me to look at exploring Pakistan. Um, as you said, I grew up in London, but I really didn't know Pakistan at all even though my heritage was from Pakistan, my parents were from Pakistan. I was actually born in Pakistan as well. But at the age of one, we came to London and we grew up in the UK. Um, so it was a combination of many things, um, a combination of opportunity, a combination of threats, a combination of, um, you know, basically trying to find myself as well. Um, but uh, fast forward now, I've been living in Pakistan for over three decades. Um, it's really been an amazing experience. It's been a great opportunity. Um, we found fame and fortune in Pakistan. And I think, uh, you know, Pakistan gets a lot of bad rap uh, internationally versus with respect to its image. I recall when I was growing up in London, um, we were all immigrants, mostly in, at that time, especially in the community that we lived in. But there were very few Pakistanis, ironically. Majority of them were either Indian or they were Greek or Italian or Jewish or, you know, from some other nationality. And of course, we had a lot of Afro-Caribbean people living in Northwest London where I grew up. Um, so basically what that allowed us to do is to see people as one, irrespective of what their background was, because we were all growing up together. Um, later on, of course, you know, in the 70s, we had some challenges with uh, the what they call the National Front, uh, which was a political um, <clears throat> extremist um, party that didn't want immigrants. I mean, their view was that immigrants are the worst thing and they're taking over our jobs, they're taking over our country. Um, so that was a big challenge for us. I remember growing up in the 70s, not only for me, but, you know, they saw all immigrants across the board as, uh, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. So that was perhaps one of the reasons. But as I said, there was a few other reasons trying to find myself as well. Um, going to Pakistan, I remember this was in 1991. 
um, it wasn't really that easy. It was a bit of a challenge. Um, Pakistan has moved on in the last 30 years as well. Things have become much easier. I think, you know, even, even in the UK, things have improved significantly as well. And I'm very happy to see that, you know, immigrants have a much stronger position and a much better place and are much more welcome, especially in the newer generations. Um, so basically, I think uh, Pakistan, I would like to share the story. Uh, and it offers a lot for people who perhaps are trying to find themselves as well. So I personally would encourage that, you know, if you're, let's say in your later life, you're retired, it's a great place to retire in, um, especially if you have built up some wealth in, in the UK. Uh, the pound goes very far against the rupee nowadays. But also I would encourage young people as well to go back either to Pakistan or wherever they originally immigrated from, originally their parents immigrated from, um, and maybe try and spend a little while to get to know their background, their their. Um, family background, their culture, and also explore those countries. Because I personally feel that emerging countries in South Asia, um, whether that's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or any of the Chinese countries, uh, they offer a lot um, of learning opportunities, as well as uh, investment opportunities, as well as uh, growth opportunities as well. So that's my two cents. Yeah, so th that's really fascinating because you went pre-internet and now, you know, like the world is so much global, so I can do a podcast from London, and it can be seen in, in Karachi. But when you went, you, could, you were pretty much cut off from the Western world, right? When you went, when you first went in the early 90s. Correct. Whereas now, you're traveling much more, Correct. like the, the life of an immigrant is a lot easier to go to anywhere in the world, would you say? Oh, definitely. I remember, you know, we, we couldn't even make phone calls. Uh, although you could make a phone call, it was so expensive that the per minute charges were such that you would hardly make a call maybe once a month or something like that. So, and of course, things have improved. Today, you can FaceTime somebody uh, for, for practically free mm -hmm. and get high definition video conversations going. Yeah. But I think um, things have definitely moved on and it's much easier today. But in addition to this technology, the countries have developed as well. So just to give you an example, when I went to Pakistan uh, again in the early 90s, we didn't have mineral water to drink. So this was a big challenge. Um, I remember the first six months, for example, I had diarrhea consistently. Um, but things have moved on, fortunately. Mineral water is now readily available. And uh, most middle-class families ha do have access to mineral water. And of course, that has affected the quality of life. Not only mineral water, that's just one example, but the quality of life has improved as well. The quality of education has improved. The quality of healthcare has improved. Um, and in many ways, I think it, you know, I've, I've actually seen some reverse health uh, benefits as well. So we've had people, you know, the National Health Service, you wait here for perhaps six months to a year for a simple operation, right? A simple procedure. Uh, many people go to Pakistan and have that procedure done, spend some time with their family, enjoy a little holiday and come back um, within literally a few weeks. Um, and it's a fraction of the cost that they would have to pay if they were going private, let's say, in the UK. So there are those benefits as well. And what do you, we'll talk about two things. What's the difference in life in a developed, you know, and I don't know if it's branding, but like a developed place like the UK and Pakistan. And then we'll talk about what's the difference in startups in, in those two as well. So I think uh, obviously, uh, you know, like when we call them developing or emerging means that they have, they, they're time-wise behind the other countries, for example. 
Um, so, for example, what does that mean? That means that, let's say, something is developed in, uh, let's say, Europe or in the US, it takes time to reach those countries. Just as if you look at adoption of technology, uh, whether that's Facebook, social media, or whether that's artificial intelligence, these things typically develop in the West and then they ultimately filter into the uh, Eastern markets. Um, but the, the, the change is happening, the difference is much less now. Just to give you an example, I remember when I was selling mobile phones, um, I would ask my family members to send me mobile phone magazines so that I could see the latest mobile phones. And the magazines, when I received them, sometimes were six months old. So now I'm looking at a magazine which is six months old, but I'm looking at the latest mobile phone, which has yet to be, has still not arrived in Pakistan. Um, today, of course, that gap has been reduced literally to six minutes or six days. Um, so the phones that people are using, for example, here in Europe are exactly the same ones that we're using in Pakistan. And sometimes the launch dates are similar. Um, nowadays, again, just for illustration purposes for the audience, uh, Mission Impossible was released, uh, I think, a week ago here in Europe. Um, and the same time it was released in Pakistan as well. So that gap of time has been reduced significantly. And what would you say is the difference in startups? So starting up a company in, in London or UK, as opposed to doing that in, in a country like Pakistan? Yeah, so startups globally have their own challenges. Founders have their own challenges. And many of those challenges are very similar. Uh, it's a lonely journey. Uh, you need to find the right kind of co-founder. You need to build the team. You need to you know, identify a market gap. And then you need to create a solution for that gap. Um, and I think uh, two or three things that I would share. I think that there is a lot of support in the UK uh, from institutional organizations, for example, universities, uh, the culture, the government. For example, you have uh, government tax breaks on startup founders investing in startups, uh, SEIS and SES. Uh, in Pakistan, I think the advantages are, the, uh, the disadvantages, by the way, in the UK is the cost of doing business is much higher. So, for example, if you were to develop an app or if you were to start up a company that needed technology, uh, it would probably cost you tens of thousands of pounds uh, before you can actually develop an MVP, for example. Pakistan is the reverse. Um, there is limited support from the government, although they are trying. Um, there's no tax incentives as such. But there are, the cost of doing business in Pakistan is much lower. So if you could find the right team uh, to develop your MVP, you could probably do it at a fraction of the cost than you could do it here. You could also found uh, technical co-founders. So I know many startup founders here in the UK have actually reached out to us and said, we need a technology partner or a technology CTO, for example, or a co-founder who has a technology background. Can you help us in that regard? And Pakistan, uh, I think, you know, really does excel itself in two areas. One is healthcare. Pakistani doctors are doing very well, not only in the UK, but in the US and the world over, but also in technology as well. I think that, you know, Pakistanis have a lot of uh, grip and hold on technology and can do high quality work uh, within a, a, a lower budget and a lower time frame in terms of cost. One of the frustrations that I talk to freelancers uh, that come from Pakistan is as soon as someone sees Pakistan, they will just think lower cost. And so they can't go for the premium products uh, projects as much because people assume it's a little bit cheaper. Would you say that's gonna remain the case? Because now, you know, I, I do remember in the old days, you had the magazines and the books come later, but now my team, for instance, I give them Udemy access Correct. and YouTube and all Correct. this so they can be at that level. Correct. Do you think there'll be a time where if you're based in Pakistan, you can charge 
$10,000 a month, just as much as here? And, and how can people build that brand? Yeah, I think uh, to, to answer your question in short, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to take a little bit of time because if I'm getting the same cost from another country, why wouldn't I have it done where I am based, right? Because that would make life easier for me. So there has to be some benefit and that benefit could either be financially a lower cost or a better quality or less a time frame, for example. So I think um, it's only a question of time before that income uh, reduces itself because as the quality of work improves in Pakistan, they will start to demand more money. And how do we do that? Because what I remember studying in my old business classes was how Japan used to be very low quality and then over time it became a good quality nation and now we're seeing that change with, with China. Correct. It used to be the made in China means the lowest price, Correct. but now they're getting higher quality. How does a country, in your opinion, improve the quality of its products and services? Well, you know, you mentioned Japan, for example, and, and I remember those days when in the 70s, for example, Japanese televisions were considered to be, or electronic goods were considered to be inferior to English or British or German, for example. Uh, and obviously that thing has changed. Um, you, you probably are aware that the Japanese decided to go along the Kaizen continuous improvement process, improving a very small amount on every uh, new product that they developed. Um, we've seen China do the same. In fact, I'd like to add India. I think India has done a great job in this particular space by improving the quality of its products as well. So as I said, it's a question of time. So if you look at today, if we take a snapshot of the quality of work that's being done in Pakistan and take a similar snapshot five years ago, we've definitely improved. Mm. Now, if we take the same snapshot in five years from now, definitely we're going to improve further. So it's a continuous process. And you had over 300 startups, I believe, at the right. National Incubation Center. If you had to give like three key lessons that you learned as you know, you're looking at the big picture that very few people do. What are the, th the three sort of big lessons that you can say that I, I wish every entrepreneur knew when starting a... Um, start uh, so there are many lessons, but I think one of the, the two or three things that I would like to share is that surround yourself with people who can support you. And that means other founders as well. Um, ideally, you should have at least two co-founders. So in my opinion, the, the, the most successful startups tend to have three founders who complement each other rather than be copies of each other. So for example, if you have somebody who's really good at, let's say, sales and marketing, you needed somebody else who's very good on IT or somebody who's good in finance and business development and so on and so forth. So having a great team, I think that's really important. Um, the other thing is uh, for startups, um, it's, a, it's a lonely and a challenging journey. So be patient. Um, you know, not every day is going to be a good day. Some of them are not so good. Uh, but what you should do is be patient, be persistent, be consistent, be determined and continue to, you know, try it out. Um, also, I think that, you know, you should always try even from the smallest point. And often people, you know, they say, oh, you know, uh, if I go to, um, you know, is he really going to give me time of day? Is he going to talk to me? Will I really, is there any value in me going to see him? You really never know. I always say never underestimate the power of a conversation. Uh, you and me had a small conversation and it's leading to this and hopefully in the years ahead, it'll lead to something else. So I would say find the right kind of co-founders, uh, be patient, work, be disciplined in your work and don't sell too early as well. What do you mean don't sell too early? 
So a lot of founders, uh, and I think this is more of a trend nowadays, are looking to raise money as quickly as possible. Uh, personally, I find that uh, a little inappropriate. Yes, of course, there are exceptions if you're growing, you're scaling. But generally, I think what you should try to do is find paying customers to pay for your product and service. Because once you have that, then you can either use that money to generate your monthly expenses, mm -hmm. or you can use that as a case to get higher in valued investments. Um, so, you know, people, I have seen this, think that once they get investment into their company, once they make money in, as in uh, investment money, angel or VC, that will solve their problems. But actually it starts to create a lot of other problems that they had not envisaged. So grow slowly, but grow steadily. And uh, don't worry about rushing and, and all the other fashionable things that we see in the startup ecosystem. Okay. And what other tips would you give someone that wants to be, wants to reverse immigrate, right? So move from the West to the East and in 2023 or beyond, uh, what are the pros, the cons, what should they be aware of? So, I mean, this is a great question. And I, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it's obviously country specific. My experience has been with respect to Pakistan. I think there are some experiences that are common irrespective of wherever you go. So that would be, for example, um, find, uh, do some research, uh, find out why you want to go. You know, is it because, you know, you're nostalgic or you feel like you want to go back to your roots? Is it because you feel you can make more money? Is it because, you know, you're frustrated where you are and you just want to get the hell out of there? There are many reasons, right? So try, try to find out what are the reasons and list them down and, and are they really strong enough? Then uh, do research. Uh, first of all, research on the country itself. Uh, then on the industry that you're interested in, you know, whether it's education or health or agriculture or whatever. And then try to find like-minded people. There are a lot of social media platforms. LinkedIn is, of course, uh, my favorite where you can find people who are, uh, let's say, in that particular industry, have a similar experience. Um, and then find out who's done it. You know, reach out to them and, and ask them, what, what have your experiences been? I'm happy to share, you know, uh, for me personally, it's been a great journey. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been easy. And I think from Pakistan perspective, you have people who either love Pakistan or they hate Pakistan. Um, my request and suggestion is that, you know, if people want to reach out, happy to share with them our experience, our views, and maybe that can help them in their journey as they go back home. Amazing. And your, where can people reach you if they wanted to? Abasi.im? So, yeah. So uh, LinkedIn, as I said, Pervez Abasi, you can reach me out on there. Uh, I would like to request if you can maybe put a link in your podcast and give my email address. People can reach out. And my number, uh, WhatsApp is a fantastic communication tool nowadays. So I'm open to all of those communication tools. Awesome. He's a really open guy. He's a super busy guy, but, you know, looked me up when he was in, in London. And I can tell people that want to connect and help people. And they're in that startup ecosystem and ethos. And, and he has really interesting experiences of having moved from the West to the East and then building network from scratch. I think you also have to learn the language. Correct. Uh, okay. You have to learn the language. And he says you can't read or write it, right? But no, no. He can't read or write, but he can speak it. But then, you know, he's been able to survive and do really well in the country without being able to read or write because I always thought, is that a competitive disadvantage? But can you survive in Pakistan? Because maybe there'll be Pakistani diaspora that might not speak the language as well, yeah. or, or maybe read or write it. That's a great point. Uh, I mean, thanks for reminding me. Uh, so growing up in the UK, we never needed to speak the local Urdu language. 
so outside the house we spoke English and inside the house we spoke our mother tongue which is a village tongue, village language called Patwari. Um, so there was no need for Urdu. When I was, uh, when I landed in Karachi, uh, majority of people spoke Urdu there. So I had to learn the language there. So I speak fluently now. Um, that wasn't always the case, but I still cannot read or write. Has it been a hindrance? I don't think so. I mean, to be honest, um, most of the business communication is all done in English. Uh, previously, it was letters and faxes. Now it's emails, etc. Um, perhaps once or twice a year, somebody writes a letter to me from the village, let's say. Um, I can always get my colleague or my assistant or somebody to read it out for me. Um, so I would say 99.9 percent, .9 absolutely not. If you're comfortable in English, you'll do well. Yeah. And these startups that were coming to you in the National Incubation Center, would you say like 99 percent of them knew English well enough to be able to pitch things or were a lot of them only Urdu speaking or do you see that as a class barrier in the country as well? Yeah, I think a lot of people do see it as a class barrier. Uh, although, you know, when you have something, you take it for granted, right? So uh, for me personally, I didn't see it as a class barrier. Um, we are in Pakistan bilingual. So, you know, when we normally speak, we speak both in English and in Urdu in the same sentence, right? So it, it's natural to be move. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about even the Pakistani graduates or the students that come from universities. Uh, having said that, uh, language is not a prerequisite for us. So if somebody comes and they don't say a single word in English, if they speak only in Urdu, that's fine too. Okay. Okay. Uh, you can connect to him, Parvez Abbasi, really fascinating guy to learn from. And uh, we, we'll catch up next time on amiranthur.com.